Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel, South London. You can visit us at calvarychapelsouthlondon.org. And so now to introduce our guest, um, we want to thank the Lord for Rob Hughes, who is originally from Trinity Road Chapel, um, which I believe is in Tootin. Amen. And Rob is an evangelist. You know, in Ephesians chapter 4, it talks about the five-fold ministry, four-slash-five-fold ministry, um, apostle, evangelist, pastor, no, apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, and teacher. Um, the role of an evangelist is vital. And in the context of Ephesians 4, the role of those five individuals or giftings are for the building up or the edification of the body of Christ. Now, you might say an, an evangelist, what on earth is an evangelist going to do for the body? An evangelist is supposed to go out there and go share the gospel with people who ain't saved, right? But um, an evangelist actually, apart from that important role, has a lot to contribute to the body. And uh, we want to thank Rob because he was with us a few weeks ago because of the Jamaica crew who needed, it's like 46 of us, right? We needed some, um, just some instruction with regard to evangelism, just to sharpen everybody up. And it was a blessing. Done three sessions with us at the Adventure Playground and it was banging. Everyone was blessed. And so what we've done is we've invited Rob and at his convenience, he's come today. He's actually teaching again this evening. I'm not sure if he's going to be able to stick around. He's teaching at his own home church. Um, but isn't it wonderful that he's here with us today, particularly, particularly knowing, I'm being like Natasha now, I think I'm talking too fast, I better slow down. <laughs> particularly knowing that we're going to be leaving this week, amen. So um, would I ask you just to, um, again, as Pastor P said, would you just make Rob feel at home as he comes and shares the word with us this morning, amen. Thank you, Rob, for that. Is this, everybody hear me okay? Yeah, okay. Thanks, Rob. It's a real privilege to be here. It really is. And um, it's wonderful to come and be together with people who love the Lord and people who are passionate about evangelism and hearing of your trip to Jamaica and uh, the amount of time and preparation that's gone into that. It's a great joy to hear of that um, and a great blessing. So I'm going to share with you uh, this morning a couple of things. Uh, more than a couple of things, actually, but two main things. We're going to look at the gospel, and we're going to finish off by asking the question, how do we communicate the gospel or preach the gospel? But you're going to get the gospel, first of all. Is that okay? Um, so let's just pray before we start. Father God, we do thank you that uh, your word is living and powerful, sharper than a double-edged sword, and is able to discern the thoughts and intents of the heart. It speaks to us. It challenges us. It encourages us. Father, it is a word, a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And without it, we are nothing. We need your word, Lord, and we are so grateful for your word. Father, as we come before your word this morning, we do pray that you would speak to us through it, that it would equip us and train us in the way of righteousness and the way that we ought to go. Father, speak to us now through your spirit and through your word, we pray in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Well, for those of you who don't know, I, I lead a, a team um, on a Friday night up in Leicester Square. Michael and uh, Raymond and Harriet join me. Uh, it's a great privilege to have them with me on a Friday night and uh, for them to make use of their time to come and join me. And it's amazing what we do. You know, we, we are coming together from different churches, but for the common cause of the gospel. And I, I would love to see more of that happening in the church today, C- collaborating together and working together for the common cause of the gospel. It's just so important. I'm going to share with you uh, this morning from John chapter 6. So I hope you brought your Bibles with you this morning. We're going to be looking at John chapter 6. We're going to be looking at a lot of verses this morning. We're going to be really getting into Scripture. So I do hope you've got your Bibles and that uh, you're able to follow along. So John chapter 6 from verse 22. John 6, verse 22. And let's just read it through from verse 22 through to verse 45. We're going to read it together. Verse 22. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, You are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do? That we may see and believe you. What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up at the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can see me unless the Father who sent me draws him, 
and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Let's finish there. If you were walking through a hot desert with the sun beating down upon you and you were desperately thirsty, what would you need? Water, right? If someone walked up to you with a bag full of diamonds, would that satisfy your most important need? No. You would still need water, right? Similarly, if you were desperately hungry and in need of food, would a bag full of gold satisfy your most important need? No, it wouldn't. You would need food. Our life in this world calls for food and water. However, it also calls for another type of food, another type of water. And that is what we're going to see in our message this morning. The chapter before us is indeed a rich chapter. By the time we reach verse 22, Jesus has already fed the 5,000 with two loaves of bread and with five loaves of bread, sorry, and two pieces of fish. He's also walked on the water, demonstrating to his disciples that he is far more than just a man. After arriving on the other side of the lake, the people approach Jesus and they ask what appears to be a reasonable question. Rabbi, when did you get here? Now rather than answer them directly, he instead rebukes them. Have a look at verse 26. Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of God will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. It's a rebuke. And it's also a rebuke that is necessary and well-founded. You see, like so many of us today, the people were more concerned with their materialistic needs as opposed to the needs of their soul. Jesus is certainly concerned with our needs. In Matthew chapter 6, he admonishes us not to worry or be concerned with the cares of this world. Our heavenly Father knows that which we need. However, God would remind us that life, indeed eternal life, is more important than food. Therefore, we ought not to work for that which perishes. We ought not to work for that which is passing away, but rather that which endures to eternal life. In his first epistle, the Apostle John writes this, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. You see, it is indeed indeed God's will that we would do his will. What is his will? 
You hear that question bounced around a lot today, don't you? What is God's will? Well, we are actually seeing it in this passage. Have a look at verse 28. The people said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Now to believe in him is to have complete confidence in him. To trust in him implicitly. It goes far beyond simply believing the claims he made that he did indeed exist and that he walked this earth. What does it say in the book of James? It says the demons believe and shudder. Belief in Christ ultimately is what we would refer to as faith, absolute trust. Not simply believing that he existed, that he made some claims, but actually believing in him, trusting in him, having complete confidence in him, trusting in him implicitly. And to trust in him implicitly means to surrender your complete life into his care. That word surrender is really important. Because you're not holding on to your life. You're letting go. We need to be reminding people to weigh up the cost. There's a cost involved. Can I say something? It's not easy to become a Christian. It's not. Some people like to really make it simple and you just pray this little prayer or sign on the dotted line and you're good to go. (laughs) No way. You have to be willing to die. Whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he will find it. Those are Christ's words. When I share the gospel with people, I often use the analogy of a parachute when talking about trusting in Christ. If someone were to jump out of a plane wearing a parachute, their very life would depend on that parachute. Yeah? They could flap their arms until the cows come home. It wouldn't help, okay? Their very life would depend on the parachute. In much the same way, our dependence needs to be in Christ. In fact, the Bible goes so far as to say, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. You'd think that they would know, they knew that there was a parachute. Put on. Anyway. It may well be, it may well be, that the Lord returns before we face death. The earth thought of that? It may well be that the Lord returns before we face death. However, if, if in our lifetime this does not happen, then you and I will have to jump through the door of death. And on that day, much will depend on who and what you are trusting in. This is the will of the Father. You know, I kind of deliberated in my mind as to what title I should give this message today. And most people would give it the title, I am the bread of life. In fact, in my Bible, the, at the top of the heading, the little subject headings, it says, I the bread of life. But I thought to myself, yes, it's all about the bread of life. But really, what is it about? It's about the will of the Father. The will of the Father. We're going to see 
what the Father's will really is as we go through this. The will of the Father is that we trust in Jesus. Now, why do we trust in Jesus? Well, that's what we're discovering, aren't we? He has already said that he is the bread of life. It is because he is our life. The very life we need, not just for this world, but more importantly, for the world to come. See, the people in this passage did not understand this. Jesus was simply the means by which they could satisfy their materialistic wants and desires. They were before the Savior, yet they desired from him not what he came to give, but rather what they yearned to have. And in the preceding verses, what we see is quite incredible. Having performed great miraculous signs already, I mean, come on, you go out and feed 5,000 people. Okay? Having seen great miraculous signs already, the people ask him, What miraculous sign will you give that we may see it and believe in you? What will you do? Our forefathers ate the manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Again, Jesus rebukes them and corrects them. I tell you the truth, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Their spiritual blindness is striking. Not understanding at all what he is saying, they turn and then say, Sir... From now on, give us this bread. They do not understand that he himself is the bread. Why are they so blind? They are completely cut off. The Bible says that the prince of this world has blinded people's minds and eyes that they will not see. The people have completely missed the point. Their continuing desire to use Jesus for their physical needs is clearly evident. It is also a clear indication of their superficial interest. Sadly, this superficial and shallow interest still marks many supposed followers today. Followers who fill churches looking for their desires and needs to be met, as if Jesus was in the lamp and you just rubbed it and he out popped the genie. Sadder still, there are many churches that seek to accommodate them. Ultimately, this is a form of humanism. Humanism would declare that the end of all being is the happiness of man. The end of all being is the happiness of man. The reason for existence becomes man's happiness. Salvation is reduced to simply a matter of getting all the happiness you can out of life. This is not Christianity. Christianity says the end of all being is the glory of God. When we seek our own desires and our wants and our pleasures, we do not glorify God. 
We instead glorify ourselves. Having a desire in and of itself is not a bad thing if that desire is virtuous and honorable in God's sight. And the gospel today has been reduced down to God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. The health, wealth and prosperity message. Come to Jesus and get. Come to Jesus and get. Accept Jesus into your heart. Can I tell you something? It's not about you accepting him. It's about him accepting you. You often say to somebody, uh, do you know the Lord? Does he know you? We need to examine our hearts to see what it is we truly desire. The Bible is explicit about this. Examine yourself. Search your heart. Know your heart. What is it that you desire in this life? Do you desire that which is fleeting and passing away? Or that which endures to eternal life? It is the heart that loves the Lord that will seek to glorify him. Jesus said this, if you love me, you will obey me. And this is so different from modern religions, isn't it? We don't do works. God is not looking for us to present something to him that he is then going to be satisfied with. There's nothing that we could give that would cut the grade. If you love me, you will obey what I command. Many times when I have spoken with people regarding God's desire and command for us to glorify him through obedience to his word, I have often heard people say that God is egotistical and self-centered to ask this of us. That God requires our worship, that we glorify him. However, the purposes of God are certainly not self-centered. When addressing the Jewish nation during their time in the wilderness, before they had entered the promised land, the Lord had this to say. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 12 to 13, if you want to follow. Deuteronomy 10, verse 12. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. Yes, God calls us to obey him and to believe in his son. God will indeed be glorified either through your obedience or your disobedience. Make no mistake. But he would see that we do obey him. Not simply to fuel some inflated ego, but that we would be benefited in the process of doing so. Everyone wondered why God gave the nation of Israel so many laws in the Old Testament? You know, when you read 
Leviticus and Deuteronomy and Numbers and there's all these laws. Is God just, does he just act arbitrarily? Does he just whimsically say, do something? Well, if he did, it wouldn't matter. We should still do it, right? Why do we preach the gospel? Because he tells us to? (laughs) But God is not just some God up there who just arbitrarily says something. There's a purpose behind it. When you look at many of the laws in the Old Testament, a lot of them related to hygiene. Wash your hands under running water. Do you know there was a time where uh, a lot of fatalities were happening with, with pregnant mothers. The mother was, was dying and the baby was dying. And this was because the doctors would simply have a bowl of water and they would simply plonk their hands in the bowl, swish it about a little bit, and then go on to the next pregnant mother. And the mother was getting infected and the child was, and there was a lot of fatalities. Right? Until some bright spark thought, well, let's wash our hands under running water. That's what the Bible says. There's, I don't know the science of it, but it makes sense to wash your hands under running water. And when they did that, the fatalities dropped significantly. God says things for a purpose. And he has our purposes in mind. Since God is holy and just, he must punish sin. His wrath will be poured out on this world. That will never be abated. Let me just tell you something right now. If you have received Christ into your life, if you've surrendered your life to him, did you know that the wrath of God no longer abides upon you? There is no more wrath on you. Now, God may discipline you as a father disciplines his child. But there is no more wrath abiding upon you. But woe be to that person who has not surrendered their life. Woe be to that person who has not received Christ. Because they are storing up wrath for the day of wrath. When on the great and terrible day of the Lord, the Bible says that people will beg the Lord for rocks to fall down upon them instead of receive the wrath of God. It puts it in perspective, doesn't it? God does not treat sin lightly. Sin is an abomination to him. He has no fellowship with it. Light does not have fellowship with darkness. And God will bring judgment to this world. Yet, in his great love and mercy, he is patient towards us not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Amen? Let us therefore not be superficial and shallow in our worship of him, like the people in this passage. Instead, let us worship him because of who he is and because of what he has done. In response to the people's materialistic demand, Jesus responds in verse 35, with one of the greatest statements in the Bible. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. Now, at first glance, you may think, how does bread 
satisfy thirst. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never hunger. Whoever comes to me will never thirst. In this particular instance, he's using bread. Elsewhere in scripture, we say, trust in me and out of out of you will, will, will flow rivers of living water. You know, when he's speaking to the woman at the well, he said, if you'd asked me, I would have given you living water. But in this particular instance, he's using bread, but he's actually saying that the bread will satisfy not just the hunger, but the thirst as well. And he's obviously referring to himself as the bread. And he's trying to show us how desperate is our need for him. He's trying to show us that we ought to be hungering and thirsting, using all of our faculties to hunger for him. We need to know how desperate we are for Christ. You know, Christ is not just an add-on. You know, he's not just some hobby that you tag onto your life. He becomes your life. And without him, well, you don't want to know. You don't want to know. To what really is Jesus referring? Is he referring to physical hunger and physical thirst? No, he's not. He's referring to our greatest need, to that which we really ought to be hungering and thirsting for. Back in the beginning of his ministry, in the Beatitudes, in Matthew 5, one of the things he said was this, Blessed are those who do hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Now we're really starting to find out what our need is. Not happiness. Make no mistake, the Christian life brings great joy. But it also brings tribulations and trials. In fact, the Bible says, all who are godly in Christ Jesus will, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. The Bible says we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of heaven. But it is a peace that surpasses all understanding that is of much greater worth than a Lamborghini. It's having a sure hope, being content whether you are with much or whether you are with little. It is righteousness that we should be hungering and thirsting for. Before a righteous God, it is the absence of righteousness that leaves us devoid of hope. It is the absence of righteousness that ought to concern us more than anything else. Let me tell you something. We're going to see now. We're going to go through some verses. But let me just say at the outset, there is no divine spark left in humanity. Just in case you're wondering. The Bible tells us that all our righteous deeds are like filthy rags in God's sight. Now the Hebrew, Hebrew, if you study the Hebrew, it can can really make you a bit embarrassed at times. Because it's close to the bone. When it says here that it's like a filthy rag, it's, it's really referring to a bloody cloth, a menstrual cloth. Something... 
But what God is, what is, God is trying to re- relate to us here is how foul our deeds are. When speaking to the rich young ruler, Jesus had this to say, no one is good except God alone. You see, let me tell you why our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. Because they're not righteous. <laughs> Pretty simple, isn't it? They're not righteous. No one is good except God alone. Now the word good has become very relative in the world today, isn't it? It's a bit like the word Christian. You know, you have to kind of like, kind of, okay, are you born again? You know, do you, do you believe the Bible? Do you believe, you know, that Jesus is the Son of God? It's become very relative. Far removed from when it was first used way back in the book of Acts. A Christian is not somebody who's just joined a club. The word Christian literally means Christ follower, a disciple. In Psalm 143 verse 2, we read this. No one living is righteous. Black and white. No beating around the bush there. No one living is righteous. In Proverbs 20 verse 9, the writer asks this question. Who can say, I have cleansed my own heart. I have kept my heart pure. I am clean and without sin. Who can, who can say that? The Apostle Paul writes in his epistle to the Romans, There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Romans 3, 11 to 12. Let's think about that for a minute. No one seeks God. How do we understand this in light of verses in the Old Testament, like Jeremiah 29, 13, which says, you will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. Hang on a minute. No one seeks God. No one seeks God. The Bible tells us that we cannot seek him until he has already found us. In 1 John 4.19 it says, we love him because he first loved us. No one seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are an open grave. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. What a list. Can I tell you something? That is the description of man. This is us. A race full of Lazaruses. Dead in trespasses and sins. Lovers of darkness and sin and selfish lust. A race that wants to do those things that pleases its father, the devil. 
Sometimes when I'm speaking to people, they say, oh, I'm a child of God. Oh, really? Jesus said, you're either a child of God or a child of the devil. If you do not love God, then your father is the devil. And his desires you long to do. Now there are many more verses we could look at to describe our fallen state. All of them reveal for us the severe effect the fall has had on man. Dr. Thomas Nettles, professor of historical theology at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, puts it like this. Every human faculty is affected by sin. Every faculty has it. Every faculty that we have, that man has, is affected by the fall. Every faculty man has is predisposed to unholiness. Our minds, our will, our emotions, our memory, our conscience, all of these things are affected and impacted and are predisposed towards corruption and evil. You know, let me tell you why I, one of the reasons why I believe the Bible. If this was an invented book, some religion that man had made up, why would man invent a religion that would condemn himself? What separates Christianity from other religions? Human virtue, the lack of it, this divine spark that the world keeps talking of. Who? Why would man invent a religion that condemned himself? That allowed no hope for himself? In worldly religions, if you pray often enough, if you give often enough, knock on enough doors, give enough, you accumulate What? Something that balances the scales in your favor. Let me just tell you something for a minute. God is just. We really need to get our heads around that. Whose standards are higher, God's standards or human standards? If you were standing in a human court of law before a human judge guilty of a serious crime, and the you were guilty. They had all the evidence to prove it. And you turned around to the judge and you said, well, I'm actually a pretty good guy. I walk the neighbor's dog and give to charity and do lots of good things. You should just let me go. What's the judge going to say? On your bike. He's not going to let you go. Now, if a human judge is bound by the law and must execute justice... How much more must God? If his standards are higher, people are going to stand before God one day and I like to think that there's going to be probably two main types of excuses. Look at all the good I've done. That's like a man who commits a murder, knows he's done wrong and he travels away to another country, becomes a fugitive. His conscience repeatedly reminds him of what he's done wrong. So he tries to appease his conscience and over a period of 10 years starts a charity, starts an orphanage, starts an old people's home, becomes the model of society, 
When the police finally catch up with him after 10 years, are they going to care that he's done all those things? No. Why? Because he's guilty. He's not on trial for starting an orphanage. He's on trial for murder. And the good you've done is irrelevant and immaterial to the case. Let me just put it in perspective for you. If you sin five times a day in one year, that's 1,825 sins. If you lived to be 70, you would have sinned 127,000 times. And that's five times a day. And yet, if you had to live a perfect life and sin only one time, that one sin would still condemn you to hell. Because that's how holy God is. Is it any wonder, when we think of man, is it any wonder that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men? Now let me just say at this point, it ought to be made clear that man is not as bad as he could be. There are obviously some people who are worse than others, correct? Yet sin has indeed impacted every part of man's being, namely his mind, his heart, and his will. Indeed, all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. Now, a man may be honorable in the eyes of the world. His vocation may also be honorable. He may be a doctor or a fireman, and he may spend each day saving lives. However, the issue is the motive of his heart. Who is he seeking to please? Is he doing good with a pure motive, or is he doing good in order to obtain favor from man? Is he selfish, or is he selfless in doing good? Now, we do see many people in the world doing good, do we not? However, next to a holy and good God, it is not good. You see, man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. He sees right through us like we're made of glass. And there is nowhere on this earth, indeed this universe, that you can hide from him. There is a bread that we need, but it is not the bread of this world. Jesus calls it the true bread from heaven. This bread, of course, is the Lord himself. In John chapter 1, you may want to turn with me to John chapter 1. We read that the word became flesh. The very word that was in the beginning with God and was God, he became flesh. He came to that which was his own, but his own people did not receive him. Notice what it says in verse 36 of John 6, if you want to just maybe keep your finger in John 1. But turn back to John 6, verse 36. Notice what it says. Jesus says to the people, But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. What had the people seen? They had seen the Messiah. That's important, isn't it? You know, we can't fully appreciate this, we can study it as much as we like, but without really being Jewish ourselves or even living at this time, 
we cannot fully appreciate the importance of the Messiah, of what the Messiah meant to the people. The Messiah was someone they preached about, spoke about. Under Roman oppression and tyranny, they longed for the Messiah. But their interpretation of the Messiah was way wrong. They had envisaged this great king who was going to come and deliver them from the, out of the hands of the Romans. But they were thinking in temporal ways. They were thinking in a worldly sense. Yes, God is concerned with our life. Of course he is. If your father so clothes the lilies of the field, will he not much more clothe you? If you, being evil, know to give your son the right thing, will not your father give you the right thing? God is concerned with life in this world. But what is he really concerned about? Where we're going to go when we die. The word became flesh. The very word that was in the beginning with God and was God became flesh. He came to that which was his own, but his own people did not receive him. And like he said to them, you have seen me and still you do not believe. In John chapter 5, in John chapter 5, he says this. Another rebuke to the people. You diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Again, a sharp rebuke. In light of this rebuke, consider what Jesus said to Thomas after he had turned from his doubting and believed. Speaking to Thomas, he said, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, does this mean that we're at a disadvantage? No. Scripture does not say we walk by sight. It says we walk by faith. Can we have faith without seeing him? Absolutely. The work that Christ began during his ministry has certainly not ended. God is most definitely at work in the world today. Many do reject Christ. Yet how sad for the Messiah to come to his own chosen people only to be rejected and scorned. However, this was not true of everyone. And neither is it true of everyone today. Turn back with me to John 1, verse 11 to 13. John 1, 11 to 13. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born, not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. How is this possible? How is it possible that an unrighteous sinner 
who does not seek God chooses to set himself apart from this world by believing in Christ. If his very nature is hostile to God and consumed with sinful passion, how is this possible? Take a look at verse 37 in our, in our chapter, John 6 verse 37. John 6, 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life and I will raise him up at the last day. Sinful man stands before the God who made him in a dire position. He does no good at all and yet even if he were to perform some righteous deeds in God's sight, some deeds that were righteous, in the justice system of a holy God, he would still be guilty. It is therefore truly a sad indictment on the heart of man to know that his every desire from birth is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. For our desires to be truly noble, they must be changed. They must be regenerated. If an 18th month old baby had the strength of an 18th month Sorry, 18-year-old man. And he wanted something from you. He'd rip your arm off to get it and feel no remorse. Because we are born wicked. Why do you need to discipline a child? Is it because he's born neutral and you have to show him what is right? No, you have to stop him from doing the wrong. Is that, is that fair? I'm not a parent, but I've got a younger brother. Our desires need to be changed. To be truly noble, they must be changed and regenerated. And the Bible says that we can't do this. The Bible says that we are born dead in trespasses and sins. We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. I'll say that again. We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. Do you have to teach a child to lie? Do you have to teach a child to steal? Do you have to teach a child to bully up other kids? Our nature is given to sin. And the words of the Apostle Paul ring true. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. God must cause us to be born again. 
But without the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit opening our eyes to the truth and changing our desires within, we will be no different from the people Jesus is talking to in this passage. In verse 42, we see how blind they are. They say to Jesus, they say, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus responds by showing them their problem. Why are they grumbling about him? Why do they not come to him and receive from him eternal life? Jesus answers in verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now this does not make void human responsibility. God indeed commands all people everywhere to repent. However, salvation does not depend on human will. As we have already seen, the redeemed are those who are born, not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. In Romans 9 verse 16, the Apostle Paul says, Salvation does not depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. What is mercy? We often think of grace, don't we? What is grace? Grace is getting what you do not deserve. What is mercy? Not getting what you do deserve. As we dig deeper into this profound truth that no one can come to the Father unless he so no one can come to Christ unless the Father who sent him draws him. As we dig deeper into this profound truth, we notice that the Bible says repentance and faith, what is required. What is required of us, repentance and faith, is actually granted to us. The Bible calls for us to repent of our sin and have faith in Christ. And it says, talking of faith, for it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not a work from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not a work so that no one can boast. Speaking of repentance... Acts 11.18, when they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God, saying, So then, God has granted even the Gentiles repentance unto life. Allow me just to digress very briefly and talk about repentance. This is a word of great importance to salvation. And yet in much of the church today, it is not proclaimed. Incredibly, some view it as an old-fashioned word. Yet it is certainly not a word the world has forgotten. I was watching the news recently and the presenter said, the great train robber, Ronnie Biggs, was wholly unrepentant. Interesting. The word describes a deep change with regards to sin. Indeed, a a deep change of the mind itself. It involves a turning from sin and turning to God. But whatever the definition of the word, the definition I like the best is actually taken from an old children's hymn. It says this, Repentance is to leave the sins we loved before and show that we in earnest grieve by doing so no more. Often when I am out witnessing 
somebody will come up to me and say, I am right with God, I have repented of my sins. Ever heard somebody say that? I've repented of my sins. What they are really trying to say is that because they are sorry for their sins, God is now pleased to overlook those sins. That's not true repentance. True repentance involves turning from sin and turning in faith to God. Ultimately, it is faith in Christ that saves us. But the true faith that we need to have always begins with repentance. See, a man will not have faith unless he repents. But it is not repentance that saves you. It is faith in Christ that saves you. Therefore, we could say that repentance and faith are on either side of the same coin. You could not have one without the other. But know this, we are justified through faith. And are we able to exercise faith in Christ apart from the grace of God? If it were so, would we not have room for boasting? Both repentance and faith are indeed granted by God. If this were not so, no one would ever come to him since, as we have already seen, there is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. By necessity, we must all be taught by God. Jesus puts it plainly, everyone who listens to the Father and learns from him comes to me. Christ is now our righteousness. The only true bread that brings life. He has satisfied the requirements of God's law for us by living a sinless life. A sinless, perfect life. Then he died on a cross bearing the punishment we deserve. He is the perfect substitute. Let's really understand what he's done. He has satisfied the requirements of God's law by living a sinless life. I like analogies, and another analogy I use is if a man is standing in a court of law, guilty of a serious crime, if he can't pay the money or present innocence, of course he can't, he's guilty, he's going to go away to prison. A guilty man cannot make himself innocent, much like a leopard can't change its spots. But if he's guilty, he's going to go away to prison. But if somebody was to walk into that courtroom and say, I love that man, I care for that man, I will pay the fine for that man, I will do the time for that man, then he is free to go, not because of anything he's done, but because of what somebody else has done. That is grace. Undeserved, unmerited favor. And that is what we need. Now, if that man who came into the courtroom, if he himself was guilty of the same crime of the convicted person, could the judge accept that? Of course not. He himself must be innocent of the crime. By necessity, the saviour needs to be innocent. We know he was because he was fully God. God is not a man that he should lie. But the saviour also needs to be God himself. God made the law, only God can satisfy the law. 
the Bible has this to say with regards to why Christ is the saviour of the world. This is taken from the Heidelberg Catechism. Really quickly, is God merciful? Yes, he is. But he's also just. Since according to God's righteous judgment, we deserve temporal and eternal punishment, how can we escape this punishment and again be received into favor? God demands that his justice be satisfied. Therefore, full payment must be made either by ourselves or by another. Can we ourselves make this payment? Certainly not. On the contrary, we daily increase our debt. Can any mere creature pay for us? No, in the first place, God will not punish another creature for the sin which man has committed. Furthermore, no mere creature can sustain the burden of God's eternal wrath against sin and deliver others from it. If a Jehovah's Witness knocks on your door and you comes into your house, if you get talking with him and he says to you, yes, we believe that Jesus is not God, then you can turn to him and say, if Jesus is not God, we're all going to hell. If Jesus is not God, that's where we're going. Because the only one who can meet the payment is God himself. You see, the genius, the, what the Bible says is that God saves us from himself. Not so much that he saves us from our sin. Sin is not a person. Sin is not after you. If you are dead in your sin, God is after you. God saves us from himself. You see, God is just. He must punish sin. He can't just forgive. We're called to forgive, aren't we? But God is just. The Bible says it is wrong to justify a wicked person and it's wrong to condemn a righteous person. Now, if it is wrong to justify a wicked person and we are wicked, how does God justify us? Seemingly that presents a problem. The only way he can justify us is if there is someone else who can meet the requirement of God's law. And what did Jesus say? I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. What did he mean by that? He came to fulfill the law's righteous requirement. Because we cannot. We cannot fulfill the righteous requirement that God requires. But Christ can and did. He is our righteousness. Why is Christianity the truth? It is the truth because it offers the only viable solution to our problem. When I'm on the street, I tell people that. They come up to me. You're so intolerant. Why do you believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life? It's simple. He, Christianity offers the only viable solution. Jesus is the only way, the only truth, the only life. There is no other. All roads don't lead to Rome. Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. Our problem is not how happy or sad we are in this life. Our problem has to do with our standing before our holy God. We have no righteousness to offer up to God. We have no righteousness to offer up before a holy God. 
a righteous God. That is why, and this is my favorite verse in the whole Bible, 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, or more correctly translated, to become sin on our behalf, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ never died on the cross because he sinned. He died on the cross because he became the sin bearer. He is our righteousness. We can come to Christ knowing that our hunger and thirst for righteousness is able to be fully satisfied. Christ offers us his righteousness, a righteousness that is fully pleasing to God. And how wonderful it is to know that salvation is all of grace. It includes every component. Yes, we must turn to the Lord and be saved, but without the saving grace of God, this is impossible. With man... This is impossible. With God, all things are possible. God commands all men everywhere to repent. A man must come to God. But he cannot come to him unless God draws him. He cannot come to him unless God does a supernatural work in his heart. And so the question for the unconverted sinner is this. Is God drawing him? Has God so done a work in his heart that he now hates the sin he once loved? Hatred of sin leads to mourning over sin. Mourning over sin leads to godly sorrow. Godly sorrow produces repentance. Repentance leads to salvation. We need to be talking about sin when we evangelize. And the best way to do that is to use God's law. The Bible says that sin is transgression of the law. Sin is breaking God's law. How do you know you've sinned? Well, have you broken God's law? If I come up to you and I said, do you consider yourself good enough to go to heaven? And you said, well, yes I do. How about if I turn around and said, well, have you ever told a lie before? Have you ever stolen anything? Have you ever blasphemed God's name, looked with lust and committed adultery in your heart? Well then, by that token, you would be a lying, thieving, blaspheming adulterer. How many lies do you have to tell before you become a liar? How many people would I have to kill before I became a murderer? One. We need to be talking about sin and we use God's law to do that. The Bible says that by the law is the knowledge of sin. And that the law is a schoolmaster to lead us to Christ. And I want to just say this. Can I get a little personal? Is that okay? I, I don't know you kind folk and you've been very gracious to have me. But I want to say this. Is God drawing you this morning? Has he so done a work in your heart that you now see your sin in the light of his holiness? If that is you this morning, then I would plead with you. Throw yourself on the mercy of God. Flee from the wrath that is to come. That great and terrible day of the Lord, when God will bring to judgment all who are dead in trespasses and sins. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. For the great promise of scripture is this. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Blessed are those who mourn. 
for they will be comforted. Mourn over what? Mourn over their sin. Jesus said, come to me, all you are weary and heavy laden. Are you burdened with your sin? Is conviction weighing you down? Jesus said this, come to me, all who are weary. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And you will find rest for your souls. And I want to say this, if that is you this morning, today is the day of salvation. Repent. Turn from your sin in faith towards Christ. God will save you. The Bible promises that Jesus' death on the cross is sufficient to save all who repent and trust in him. What he did on the cross is sufficient to save all who repent and trust in him. And so if you have not surrendered your life to Christ, I would plead with you, do that this morning. Because you will come face to face with the very God who made you. What will he say on that day? Will he say, well done, good and faithful servant? Or will he say, depart from me, I never knew you. The Bible describes it as the great and terrible day of the Lord. Make no bones about it. It will be a great and terrible day. God's wrath is real. But can I tell you something? His grace is deeper than any sin. It doesn't matter what you have done in this life. You may be thinking, God could never forgive me. Jesus went to the cross so that you could be forgiven. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross so that you could be forgiven. And I would plead with you, repent and believe in the Son. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you are indeed a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abounding in love. We do thank you for your dear son who came to this earth, lived a sinless, perfect life and then died an horrific death on the cross so that all who repent and trust in him may be saved. We thank you, Father, and we pray that we would not be caught up in the affairs of this world We would be in the world, but not of the world. Father, may we trust in you. May we feed on you and in you. And Lord, I do pray for those this morning who are under conviction of sin, who have not repented and trusted in you. If there be any here this morning, I pray, Father God, that you would so do a work in their heart that they would indeed turn to you in repentance and faith. Father God, we love you and we praise you and we thank you for your word. In Jesus' name we pray.